Amen. Thank you, Amy. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. It's good to be with you this morning. Lots of folks traveling, going different places. It's really a great time of year in the summer where lots of family and vacation time ahead. So we're looking forward to that. If you would like your little one to be with uh, age-appropriate service downstairs up to grade four, you can do that right now. For the rest of you, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you've missed being in the Word this week, you're starving this morning, and I hope that you won't repeat that, like when you come to a great meal after you missed a few, you realize what you missed. So this week, try to be in the Word. We've put out some more Bible reading calendars, the trifolds. And we were cleared out last week and the week before, so if you are looking to read through the Bible verse by verse all the way through this year, and then just begin again this next year, is where you will have the blessing of knowing what God's Word says, begin to become familiar with the context, uh, contents and the context of the Word, and then apply that to your life. That richness there will be yours as you read through day by day. So pick up one of those calendars, start today. This time next year you will have read cover to cover, and you will be blessed as a result of that. If you are new with us today, we have turned our attention to Paul's instructions to the church on spiritual gifts. Picking up today in verse 21 of chapter 12, the section of Paul's Apostles' teaching on the spiritual gifts is really dealing with the unity of the Spirit. We've broken down the passage into a number of different headings as Paul has seemed to turn his attention to those things. We've allowed his outline to become our outline. Paul starts the section which begins in verse 12 by saying this. He says, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they they, they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. We saw that Paul's point here is that it takes many different parts to make up a human body. And so he's making this illustration. And as you read through, all the entire time you're reading through, as he talks about the body, realize he's talking about the body of Christ, but calling to your memory how your own physical body works. So uh, by illustration then, inevitably, the parts of uh, parts or members of the body are going to have to differ from one another. And this is the real issue that Paul's really kind of beginning to bring his focus on, kind of like a magnifying glass. You can see the whole thing. Then he begins to bring that focus in on some things he wants to address, and that's what's going to happen. So we're going to move that direction. But what had happened, and you'll see this, and we've talked about it a little bit already, the Christian church had placed a lot of emphasis on just a few spiritual gifts. And as he gets to chapter 13 and chapter 14, he's going to bring them really into focus and point out the problems with what they're doing. But here it's just a general foundation. As he began this chapter, he said, I don't want you to be ignorant. I, I don't want you to be unaware of the Holy Spirit and what he does among you. And he gave them some qualifications so they could know whether someone is doing something in the church is actually from the Holy Spirit. And then he moved on into the gifts of the Spirit and now to the unity of the Spirit and how that all those gifts work together. But in order to help the believers in Corinth understand that diversity that God has built into the body of Christ, the church, he gives them several principles to help them understand this truth. So Paul begins to get at the heart of the problem in Corinth when he says in verse 14, look there with me, for the body is not one member but many. And really, as he says this, it really takes in those who don't think they have anything to offer. And it takes in those who think they're the only ones who have something to offer. So both attention, he gets the attention of both, I think, as he makes that statement, the body is not one member, but many. It should just be obvious then, Paul says, from how the physical body functions, because that's the illustration of Christ's body, the church. So Paul gives them their first principle, and it's this. We saw this last time. Diversity defines the body. It's at its very essence. And I won't go into all those background details that we talked about. You can check in online and get caught up. But Paul then says, as he moves to verse 15, he says, just imagine the human body in rebellion. Now look at verse 15. 
If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it is not, for this reason, any less a part of the body. Just because you say that you don't have the gift that you want, you can't just say to yourself, I'm not a part of the body. And in verse 16, he says, and if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it's not, for this reason, any less a part of the body. And we saw that some churches really have spiritual MS. That's the illustration we used. It's really that parts of the body aren't working like they're supposed to. The nerve uh, nerve connections are not there or, or firing improperly. And so a lot of times, and this is just helps you understand how the structure of the church works, many times we have to organize very intricately in the church and sign up and make sure people are going to come and then call people and plug people in. And the reason why we have to do that, beloved, if we understand how the church is supposed to work, is because we have a lot of the church with spiritual MS, and I say the church in general, okay? We have church with spiritual, spiritual MS. We've got a lot of people not functioning, not functioning like they should, not play in, in the body where, where their parts should be, because if we understand the passage correctly, the Lord has placed in the body all the parts that we need, and they should all be functioning at the same time. So when a, a need comes up, or there's something opening that happens, or a ministry that it's going to go on, people are plugging in, and we're not having to carefully structure everything, so we make sure we've got everything covered, because we would have more than an abundant amount of people covering all those things. So Paul's principle is this. You can't opt out. That's not one of the options as you're part of the body of Christ. Any more than the members of your physical body can opt out and how ridiculous that would be. So from Paul's comments, it really seems that some of the members of the church, perhaps at this very early part of his address to the unity of the Spirit, were gifted with other gifts besides the ones everybody thought were great. So they're a little depressed. So Paul gives them some encouragement in verses 15 and 16. Every part of the body is essential. And then Paul switches to the other side of the problem, and he says, okay, what if it were all set up the way that you wanted so you could have the spiritual gift you really would like to have? What if you got to decide what the church needed? Then he gives a picture of what that would perhaps look like, and he goes to verse 17. And he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? That's Paul's Paul using humor. That would be the vision church and the word of the Lord church. You can see everything the Lord wants you to do. You know, we see what the Lord wants. We see the vision. We hear what the Lord says. Of course, you know, all the other parts of the body that have to function and make that happen aren't there, so you can't do anything about it. And that's exactly what was going on in the church in Corinth. Everyone was after the same gifts, the showy gifts. So Paul's third principle was very clear. He says you can't be a functioning body if you don't have all the necessary parts. It's not possible for you to do what you're supposed to do, and we need to be functioning because... If we aren't functioning like we're supposed to, we're not going to present a correct image of Jesus. We have all the parts we need. Paul says you've got the parts you need. You can't opt out. You're going to have to be functioning with all your parts in order to present the correct picture. And then in verse 18, we saw Paul's next principle concerning the unity of the Spirit. Verse 18, look there with me if you would. But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And Paul's fourth principle is this. This is really a shift for Paul. He's just ex- explaining the, the uh, really the nuts and bolts of the way the church is supposed to work. Then he says, just in case you think this is very random, verse 18, but now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he's ad- he desired. So Paul's fourth principle is this. God is directly and actively involved in crafting Christ's body, the church. It's not some random thing. He's not, he's not throwing all the gifts out there and just seeing where they land, and then you, you, know, you pick them up and you go any more than members of the physical body are put together in that haphazard manner, okay? So that's continuing to bring back to your mind, your body's not designed that way, and the body of Christ isn't designed that way. It's a very specific sentence here. It reveals very much to us in just a few words. And so, and the idea here is, and we looked at this in depth last time, we won't do it again, but the idea here is this. At a certain time, God placed the believers with his spiritual gifts in the body. 
That's the reality of the situation. God's already done this. The body of Christ, manifested in the church, has members, and that's hands and feet and eyes and ears, or if you will, helps, service, mercy, showing, encouraging, and all the other gifts just substitute the members of the body, a physical body, for the members of the spiritual body. And God has put all of that there. He's put each one of them, it says, in the body. So he has all the information, he knows all the options, he knows all the personalities, he knows what the current needs are, he knows what the future needs are, so then every single member, thus every single combination of gifts represented in the members, and we've looked at that at length, no one's excluded, no gift, no matter how you may think it's small or insignificant, it might appear, no steward of that gift is overlooked. See, He knows all this, and he has acted on that knowledge with wisdom, and he did all that, it says, just as he desired. And that, again, is a wonderful expressive Greek verb, eris active indicative. In other words, in his oversight, creativity, and his foresight, he's taken delight in being directly involved in the present reality of the church body. That delight and that oversight extends to every member of the body. He's made them all just as he wanted them to be, and he put them just where he wanted them to, to put them, cast this for his own purposes. That's the idea there, just as he desired. Ethelison, a very, just a great, just a very comforting word. It, it shows that, and as you think about it, maybe if you're not involved, uh, you're not plugged in somewhere on a regular basis. I think, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to carry Paul along to say this a couple of more times. So it isn't just a passing thought for Paul. It's it's a key thing for Paul. It's a foundational element that that folks in the church need to realize. The sentence really clears up a few things concerning spiritual gifts. Number one, God has put together a group of people who were one, and yet every single one is unique. And number two, spiritual gifts and placement are a finished act. God's already done this. See? And individual believers, and this is very important, aren't waiting for some second work of the Spirit to make them effective. He's already placed them there. He's empowered their gifts. They're ready to go. And number three, there's no indication that a believer is choosing their own gift. They're not waiting around for the gift of tongues or the gift of prophecy or whatever to bless the church or whatever. God has already placed them. He's determined them in his, in his own mind for his own purposes, his own desires, just as he saw fit. So you're not, you're not waiting for your own gift. God's already determined what it is in the portion that he's going to give it to you in relation to the faith that he's given. So once again, we're taking in a big swath of Scripture that we looked at as we compared Scripture with Scripture. So some takeaways here then, if you understand this, are, number one, be about serving and ministering in the body because you're a living part of it. If you understand that by itself, that will create a desire in you, if you're truly born again, to be plugged in. You are a part of a living body. Be faithful, number two, at whatever level it is, because it's all important, or if you want to use, you know, key words from the books that you get on the bookshelf today, it's all strategic, it's all stewardship, it's it's all those things, okay? Every part is important, just like all parts of your body. And Paul's going to get really specific here in just a few verses and tell just how important some parts are. And number three, just kind of a takeaway, if God has placed you here specifically as he wanted you, then you have accountability then to use that. You are, if you will, a stewardship. You have a stewardship. As we said before, you're a minister. That's your identity. You're a living part of the body. It isn't for spectators. And I'll say this again over and over. Okay? A believer who doesn't have a ministry, that's a contradiction in who you've, who you've been made to be. You're denying God the right to use you in the way he's gifted you and prepared you to be used. Whatever excuse may have popped up into your mind right then, but I'm whatever. I'm too busy, or I'm involved somewhere else, or I'm whatever. Okay, Whatever that is, you need to understand that runs... In contradiction to what we just understood about how the church is set up, okay? Now, you have a stewardship. You're a debtor, really, to the body, and so am I. You have a gift. You're to use it for the common good. So instead of coming up with reasons why you can't serve or won't serve, 
Just rest here. And I think this is Paul's point as he talks about God's sovereignty here. Just rest in the reality of God's active involvement in your life. You can see that Paul wants the church to be content with what God has given them. You can see certainly um, that he wants them to get in their mind the sense of divine input that actively and joyously made them, them, and you, you, and put you where you are. I think you can sum it up. I think everything we've read from verse 1 really up through this verse, uh, verse 18, you kind of sum it up this way. God's skillfully accomplished individuality where he's placed different gifts for different ministries, for different outcomes, given to every part of the body so it can function in a healthy manner. God has done that. And I think that's a, that's a great takeaway to understand as you, as you figure out where you need to be plugged in. That's the reality of the church body. Now, after making his first four points, Paul really reiterates the foolishness of trying to organize the body of Christ as an individual sees it to be. So verse 19 says this, if they were all one member, where would the body be? And of course, that's just obvious. It'd be weird, okay? It'd just be this pulsating eye or this floppy ear or a hand there by itself like Cousin Ed or whatever, okay? Uh, and that's not Cousin Ed, it's whatever the hand is, I don't remember that. But anyway, that's God's plan. That's how it's supposed, supposed to work correctly. The way the church works best is when everyone's in an area of ministry that they've been given, whatever the gift, just begin to minister. And, and I told you this as we closed last time. I don't know what your gifts are necessarily. Some of you I do. I've seen you use them, and it's, it seems to be obvious. But here's the thing. By now, you should know that this, how the Spirit of God works because we've been through this very carefully. And you should know that you've been baptized into Christ's body at salvation. You're not waiting for anything else. You should know that you've been fully equipped. And, beloved, those things are enough for you to get started on so you can begin to define your ministry and be useful to God. As you begin to plug in, and you work over time, the Lord will make clear to you where those strengths are, where he has gifted you so that you can do things that you would not be able to do in your physical body. I'm not talking about a talent to play the guitar, a talent to sing. I'm not talking about talents. What I'm talking about is a spiritual gift and empowerment from the Holy Spirit given to you at salvation where you can plug into the church and do something you would normally be able to do and see fruit come from that gift. Okay? That's the issue. So plug into a ministry. Develop a ministry, work at it faithfully, and work at it sacrificially, and you will see God being in a bless, and really you'll be right in the middle of his will for you. Okay? Now, let's look at verse 21. We'll read through verse 27, and that'll allow us to, to work through the end of this section, Lord willing. Look at verse 21. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Verse 22. On the contrary... It is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Verse 23, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow much, we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Verse 24, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body but that the members of, members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Let's stop right there. Now as we start this next little section inside the unity of the Spirit, we can see Paul's going to take on the pride and the arrogance again that really marks this church. It's really plagued the church over the whole course of the letter so far. It always pops up, and Paul has to deal with it. Earlier, he was encouraging those who might be a little depressed about their lack of a spectacular gift and encouraging them not to feel inferior. He now turns his attention to those who are 
who possessed some of the showier gifts and had some pride and had some arrogance about what they could do, and he, in essence, is going to say, don't think you're superior. So he says, verse 21, look there if you would, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Let's pause right there. That's principle number five. You can see this on the back of your bulletin. Don't overestimate your importance. First of all, don't underestimate. That's what Paul talked about first. The people who are depressed, maybe I don't have the gift, an upfront gift or whatever, I can't really serve. Don't, don't underestimate your importance. And here, Paul just gives some balance. Don't overestimate your importance, because this is really a problem in the church, where those who have a few showy gifts are kind of dominating the whole thing and not thinking anybody else is that important. So Paul moves from the eye to the hand and the head to the feet. Now, Imagine, you know, imagine the eye and the head, okay? That's the first thing he really brings into perspective. Uh, They're placed in a place of preeminence. These two body parts represent where everyone looks. So eyes are prominent. The head is prominent. They would represent public gifts, whatever they might be. That's Paul's emphasis here. That's what you look at. Whereas the hand and the foot, these are two body parts where hardly anyone ever looks, at least not initially, and they would represent helping gifts or serving gifts or supporting gifts in some way. Okay, so that's Paul, as he begins to talk about this, he brings into focus the eye and the head. Now, he emphasizes the whole body is necessary by definition of being a body. Now, look at verse 22. On the contrary, it's much truer, he says, that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Not only then, see, can no member do without the other members, but even then, now catch this, even the parts that seem to be weaker, and here's the word he uses, are indispensable. The word really emphasizes what appears to be, to some inside the Corinthian church, the apparent unimportance of these members. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't speak to, with of them, these support, these support gifts. He doesn't speak of them as an addition or a welcome addition. He doesn't say, and we're also welcoming these support gifts. But, you know, the prominent gifts are the most important. He doesn't say it that way. Okay? So, principle number six, here it is. The parts that don't seem too important are indispensable. The body cannot do without them. That's what he says, all right? He uses the word weaker. That's a Greek adjective. Uh, Paul's probably talking about anesthera is the name of the, is the word. But he's probably talking about internal organs. So if you're still using the body, the physical body as an illustration, he's probably talking about internal organs, things that are weaker, things in us that need protection in order to function. Um, not the bicep, but the hypothalamus, or, or not the eyes, but the pancreas, something like that. So something that needs protection, something that has to be covered, something that may seem feeble or less necessary, they aren't on the outside, maybe their function's a mystery, but Paul says they just seem to be more feeble. But that's a misperception. In fact, he says they're necessary. And Ankia, that's another adjective. They, they cannot, here it is, okay, this is the sense of it. They cannot be done without Absolutely required. Paul has already said, now let's remember, you remember this. Paul has already said that all the parts of the body are necessary and that God has placed each one in the body just as he's proposed. So he doesn't have to say that again. But I think it's interesting here, and catch this, this is just what I'm noticing as I go through the passage. He doesn't use the same words about the showy parts that he used about the weaker parts or the parts that aren't seen. Okay? He doesn't use the same words. In other words, and this is how I think I perceive Paul, Paul's implying here, or at least I'm inferring from Paul's passage. You can live without a hand or a foot or both. You can live without an eye or both eyes. You can live without your ears. It's difficult, but you can do it, okay? But it's really tough to live without your kidneys or your bladder or your pancreas. And I think that's Paul's point. They're more essential. The upfront gifts are great. You know, the eye and the head 
Uh, as people look at them, they seem to be prominent. They seem to be the most important thing. Paul says, not so. You can live without some of those because he doesn't use the same wording. He doesn't say those are imperative for you to have an eye or a, or a, a, you know, a head or a face or whatever, you know, that everybody looks at. And I think you understand that. He, he goes a step further and he addresses uh, their pride and he says in verses 23 and 24, look there if you with me, if you would with me. And those members of the body, which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor and on, and our less presentable members become much more presentable. Whereas, our more presentable members have no need of it. Now, let's, let's break that down. Because, again, that just kind of emphasizes this, the importance of every part of the body. Paul says this. This is the point. You know, you even know how to take care of the parts of your body that don't look so good. That's the less honorable parts, okay? Now, maybe you know how to dress it, okay? You know how to de-emphasize it, if you will. You know, if, if, you're, if you're in your 50s like me... You know, loose clothing, all right? Not the tight shirts or whatever. You know how it is, okay? And ladies, you know what to do to de-emphasize the parts of your body you don't want anybody to notice, okay? And that's the whole point. Paul says, listen, you know how to dress it correctly, to make it look good, okay? Whether you think it looks good or not, you know how to dress it correctly. You know how to de-emphasize, you know, the, the parts that don't seem so comely. You know, you make it look better, you hide it, whatever, to make yourself look better, more put together. You know, it's part of his continued correction in the church. Not only do you deem indispensable parts unneeded, he says, you, you think they're unneeded, you don't think they're that big a deal. You take less presentable parts, that's parts of the body you wouldn't want to show anybody else, your own parts, okay? And in the church, you expose them as if to belittle them. You make them look obviously immodest. He's like, can't you even connect the dots with your own wardrobe? He says, you know, you have parts of your body that you don't want anybody necessarily, you want it to look good, all right? Not that you don't want anybody to see it, but you want it to look good. Even you compensate for the members of your body that are not supposed to be on the outside for everybody to see. So the the parts of the body that everybody sees should be concerned with the parts of the body that need special care of attention. And he calls them less honorable parts. That's parts that you dress to make look better. Then he calls, then he uses the word less presentable parts, and that would probably refer to private parts, okay? You know, we normally would not want a plumber pant if, you know, if you know plumber pants, you know what I mean? When the plumber comes over your house or whatever, or somebody's over there helping you, you don't want that, okay? You don't want that to be seen, all right? You're like, you want to use the flashy thing, I I want to forget that I saw all of that, okay? Um, It can be used to refer to something indecent, okay? Paul is speaking about clothing here. There's some parts of the body thought to be less honorable. These we clothe. In fashion, seemly, Paul uses the word maybe in the authorized. Thus gives them special honor, and, we, and the verb translated treat is often used of clothing. So the idea there is you have some parts that you want to make look nice, and you have some parts that you don't want anybody to see at all, so you make sure they're covered up, okay? So Paul's speaking about clothing here. So in the same way our less presentable parts, uh, we treat with special modesty, see. Connect this, Paul says. You make sure that the parts of your body that maybe aren't as, aren't as attractive or are made to look nice, you want to make sure that parts of the body nobody's supposed to see are covered up. You do that, you understand, you compensate for the members of your body, you're not supposed to be on the outside for everybody to see. So after all that, principle seven, here it is, okay? And you see it up there already. The parts of the body of Christ nobody sees should be given special honor and attention, just like people do with those parts of their physical body. That's the point. He's talking to the arrogant folks. He's talking to folks who, you know, they have maybe some upfront gifts. They think they're the only ones. And in Corinth, you know, it's the ones with the, with the gift of tongues. It's the ones with the gift of prophecy. They're all doing it at the same time. Everybody's standing up doing their thing. See, and Paul's like, no, that's not how it's supposed to be. And we're going to see in chapter 13 and 14, he's going to order all of that. But here he's just making sure that we understand, listen, this is, this is, not, how, this is, this is not how that's supposed to work, okay? There should be 
gratitude. There should be thankfulness. There should be respect, gracious attention. And Paul finishes up that thought with the obvious. Verse 24, look there with me if you would. Whereas, he says, our more presentable members have no need of it. Why? Because they're already receiving it. It's just part of the normal course of behavior. The upfront gifts, they already get recognition. Everybody sees the eyes. Everybody sees the hair. Everybody sees the face. Okay? They're normally positively recognized. Now, look at the rest of verse 24. He says this. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, verse 25, so that there may be no division in the body, and that the members may have the same care for one another. Now, this is the second time Paul's emphasized God's direct involvement in how the body's put together. Okay, so two times the sovereignty of God is directly involved. So it changes the whole, uh, the whole calculus of everything. You know, well, I'm not that great, and I don't have something that people can use, or I don't think it's that important what I do, or I'm not even sure what my gift is. Paul's encouraging, listen, it's all important, it's all imperative, it all, it's indispensable. All the gifts are indispensable. And he doesn't use those words, of course, for the upfront gifts, but all the gifts are indispensable. But here God has direct involvement in the composition of the physical body. God knows how to do this which is the example of Christ's body, the church. When he uses the word so composed, that Greek verb is the word where we get our derivative, synchronize, synchrison, combining several parts into a whole, uniting one thing with another. The verb is aorist, active, indicative. So here it is. At a point in time, God did this, and it's the current, present reality of the body of Christ. God has already set this up. He's been involved directly in how the body is put together, physical body and spiritual body. And if you understand that your physical body, in your physical body, you're going to be giving the proper honor to the parts you don't see. If you understand you have to do that, you have to take care of the inside of you, God designed you to know that you had to do that, okay? It can't be Burger King every day, okay? Two meals a day or whatever. Double Whoppers or whatever. You can't do that. You're going to have to exercise. You know, you're going to have to... This is all part of... God designed you to know that this is not going to work. Straight... Straight diet of sugar all the time. You're going to have some problems with your pancreas. It's just the way that works. God's designed you to know you have to take care of those parts that nobody sees. The ones that are covered, the ones that are weaker, but are indispensable to you. God designed that. He designed for you to know that you need to do that. And he designed the church to know how to do that as well. So principle eight, which just really builds on principle seven, of course. And we break this down. But these interact with each other constantly. God is actively involved in making sure that every gift is recognized. He understands how that's supposed to be. And, and just to remind you, you can say, well, how does God, how is God doing that? I mean, did, this is kind of weird. God makes sure every gift is recognized. Well, Jesus' words ring right through this passage. I want to draw your attention to a couple things. Remember Matthew 18, 1 through 4? The disciples come to Jesus and say, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is the conversation they had numerous times. We're going to look at three of them today. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And maybe you wonder that yourself, okay? Maybe you're like, okay, in the church, as we do our thing, who's greatest? All right, who, if, once we get all done and we're in heaven, who's going to be recognized? Maybe you think through that, maybe you think that, you know, is the Lord going to recognize this little thing that I'm doing, you know, in the background, you know, I'm I'm working in the nursery or I'm taking care of the puggles or, or whatever it is, okay? I'm cleaning the church, I'm, you know, I'm mowing the grass. It's all important. Here's the thing. Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So we're kind of glad the disciples ask it, but then Jesus gets to say it up front. Here he says, And he called a child to himself, and he set him before him. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I'm not going to finish it just yet. You can read it behind me. Now, when you think about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven, particularly as you think about the Lord's work, a child running around in the sanctuary 
from chair to chair to chair and knocking all the books out and all whatever, okay, is not the first thing that pops into your mind, right? You're probably thinking, I have to go through there and set all that back up again or whatever. If you work with children, you know how this. You're in the nursery and one child takes out one set of toys that we're playing with and he goes and opens up the curtain and he pulls out the other set of toys that's supposed to be sanitized for the next service. And you're thinking, okay, you know, that's not the first thing in your mind that you're thinking about who's, who's best in the kingdom of heaven, who, who's greatest, okay? So Jesus starts here and he says this. He says, listen, I say to you, unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom. Verse 4, whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you tell a child, hey, would you pick up every popsicle stick that's on the floor right now? Most of the time they'll do it, won't they? Sure. Hey, you'd really help daddy if you got every communion cup that all of our folks forgot to take and put in the trash at the end of communion. You want my boys a little? Yeah, dad, I'll take care of it. Just let daddy wash your hands before you put them in your mouth or whatever, okay? Don't drink anything that's left over in any of the cups. I mean, you got to give them some, you know, when they're little. But they just do it, don't they? They'll just do it for you. Hey, you want to help daddy mow the grass? All right, you can come out. You can pick up the stuff that, you know, make up, everything's up off the ground. You know, my, my little ones, when we mow grass in our yard, can you go and get all the sticks? Pick up all the sticks. Now they're like, oh, pick up the sticks. Come on, dad. I don't want to do that. But when they're little, they're, yeah, I'll pick up the sticks. So, you know, you're, here's the thing. You don't even get into the kingdom unless you come humbly as a child. And just as a footnote, that's some of the problem with modern gospel presentations, isn't it? Because they don't even start there, do they? Come and get, right? Come and receive. You can have peace. You can have joy. You can have a father who never goes away. You can have, you know, somebody who supplies for all your needs. Come and get. That's perfect for our, our consumer society. But that isn't what Jesus said, is it? Come and be like a child and humble yourself. And I'm telling you, if you present the gospel that way and people come that way, they're at the correct starting point, aren't they? That's just a side note, and that's a whole message on its own. But if you come that way, then what makes you great in the eternal kingdom? The very thing that will get you overlooked in the present one. Being humble. Just doing the things that need to be done. Who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? You want to know who's greatest? When you get to heaven and the Lord's kind of handing out the rewards, guess who they'll be? They'll be everybody who humbled himself and just did what was needed. All right? The very thing that gets you overlooked in this present one. Now, here's another example. Mark 9, 34 and 35. The disciples are walking along the road to Capernaum. And Jesus notices that, you know, they're having what must have been a fairly animated discussion because it drew his attention. I mean, you can imagine them kind of stretched out along the road, kind of walking, it's dusty, hot, whatever. And he notices a couple of them are together and they're having a pretty animated conversation. So he notices that, well, maybe I should inject myself into this conversation. Now, he doesn't have to ask them what they're talking about, but he does. So he says... He asked them, and here's what they do. They keep silent. Kind of like when you ask your kids, what were you arguing about? You know, what were you doing in that room? You're not getting any answer. You know, plead the fifth. I'll just get in trouble if I say something. So they keep silent. (laughs) It's Jesus, so he knows what's up. For on the way, they had been discussing with one another which one of them was the greatest. So here's another conversation, different context. So it's it's in there a lot. So it's obviously in, in people's minds. So sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anybody wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. You want to know who's greatest in the kingdom? Those who make themselves last? Those who serve other people? If you want to be first in the eternal kingdom, what do you have to do in this one? Be last in this one. See, God's actively structuring the body so that every gift is recognized, isn't he? 
And in the eternal kingdom, it's going to be perfectly clear. See? How about Luke 22, 24? They're at the Passover supper. Here's one I've told you, I've, I've taught you before. They start arguing. They're at the Passover, okay? And, and in context, once they get done arguing with this, and Jesus straightens them out, what's he going to do? He's going to gird himself, he's going to get on his hands and knees, and he's going to wash their filthy feet right before he goes to the cross and gives himself up as a ransom for everybody, okay? So, three gospel accounts, different location, different context, common topic, still common topic today, no doubt. Verse 24, there arose also a disciple among them, I'm sorry, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. You understand how that works. There's a boss, and there's people, and, they, and you know, whatever. That's how it's structured in this kingdom. But it's not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest. And the leader, like the servant. It's not doing away with leadership. It's not doing away with structure. Just saying the attitude has to be there. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? That's how they understand it. That's the kingdom they know. Jesus says the kingdom is actually upside down. What what you think is the pinnacle is actually the bottom, and what you think is the bottom is actually the top. But I'm among you, he says, as one who serves. And then he goes ahead and serves. So you can see three different locations, three different contexts. Same topic, who's the greatest? Paul says, listen, God has structured the body so that those that have those parts that have least amount of honor will have the most honor. He's already set it up this way. And just to put some upfront gifts in perspective, he says this in James 3.1, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Sometimes it's hard to know what goes on with the gifts that are less calmly or not as noticeable or flying under the radar, if you will. It's hard to know that. You perhaps don't know everything that goes on, and, and I maybe know a little bit more because I'm here a lot about people who do things and they don't want to be noticed, but I don't even know anywhere near the fraction of stuff that goes on. It's hard to know. Which is why I think that the Bema Seat Judgment is going to be such a scary and surprising event. Wouldn't you agree? And I think this whole spiritual gifting is intricately connected to that, which is why I'm going to review it a little bit with you. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, hold your finger where you are, if you would, and just flip over there because I'm going to stay there just for a few minutes. 1 Corinthians three twelve, And I'll put them on the screen, but I think it's important. You can make some marginal notes as we go through because the spiritual gifts, especially the ones that nobody sees, this is really important. This is playing a part in what's being built. But in 1 Corinthians three twelve, we went through this at length, and you can go online and, and check in the archives, and you can listen to these messages and get all the background information. I won't give that to you today. But here's the thing. First Corinthians 3.12, Paul says this, If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Now, the foundation, of course, is Christ. That's salvation. Everybody gets an opportunity to build, if you will, a spiritual building connected to what you do with the life you've been given. Okay? So, I really think there's a significant connection between gifts that are used and what's built and with what material as we see the BBC judgment. So there's a couple different types of material that can be used to build the spiritual house. This is going on whether you are actively involved in building, you think actively involved in building, or not. 
If you're redeemed, you've been building. The second you came to faith, you began building this spiritual house. Whatever it is, however you used your time, whatever went on in your past, whatever's going on, if you consider yourself a born-again believer, you are queued up for the beam of seat judgment at a future date. You will have your appointment. You have a spiritual house, whatever it's going to look like. And there's a couple different materials you've been using. I would say that if you haven't been actively involved in using your spiritual gifts in a way that we're going to qualify here, that you've been building with some materials that aren't going to last the test. Now, the buildings are this. The building materials are this. Gold, silver, or costly stone, or wood, or hay, or straw. Okay? And those are all parts of building materials that can be used to, to set up a structure. So, look at the first part, precious stones. That's costly stone, probably refers to granite or marble. If, if you were... And in gold, of course, and silver, you understand. And so if you're going to build a lasting building, you know, granite or marble or slate, that would be good. Gold and silver, that's nice. You know, uh, be a solid uh, granite marble overlaid with gold and silver, that'd be a good building. That'd be a lasting structure. That'd be something that would be there for time. But some Christians are using hay and straw and wood. And hay is used to mix with mud and make bricks. And so the cornerstones in the framework are wood and faced with mud brick. And the straw is used to thatch a roof instead of using slate or tile. So, as we, we hold our understanding that there is no judgment for sin here at the judgment seat of Christ, at the beam of seat of Christ, only with what you've done with what you have, the spiritual foundation, what you've laid on the spiritual foundation of Christ, then God is going to look at these two buildings. And the wood and the hay and the stubble isn't evil. It's just worthless because it won't withstand the test. It doesn't have any eternal value. It's just a zero sum. It's what you've thrown up. And once again, you are actively building, whether you think you are or not, as soon as you came to faith. The builder is a believer. The foundation is the same. It's Christ. It's salvation. But it really isn't fitting to put a mud hut on the foundation of Christ when you could have built with gold, silver, granite, marble, slate, and tile, right? And so that's just kind of obvious. The question, of course, is, as it relates to using your gifts, what constitutes gold and silver and granite and marble, and what constitutes wood, hay, and straw? Because that's really the question we want to know, Right? And how are those different kinds of materials incorporated into the building? And I think, as we've said before, in general, as, as all of us get there, there'll be sections of it that are granite that we thought were wood, hay, and stubble, and there'll be sections of it that are wood, hay, and stubble, or straw, that we thought were gold and silver and granite, okay? I think it's just a mixture. Maybe part of it's granite, and you got a little side wing on here, and that was just all wood, hay, and stubble, and you think the whole thing's good. And I think it's going to be surprising and scary. It should be. I mean, that's the reason why it's put here. You're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us will do that. And Paul makes it clear. Two different portions of two different letters in Corinthians. It makes it clear. Peter tells us that too. So it's, it's very firm. You've got a fixed date. And your, your structure is going to be judged with fire. Now, only the Lord, and let's just qualify this first of all. Only the Lord can correctly evaluate a house. I can't evaluate your house, and you can't correctly evaluate my house. Okay? But the clues that he gives us can give us a renewed sense of priority and really personal evaluation whether we're not, whether or not we're using our gifts at all or whether we're using them with different motives. There are really four areas of true evaluation. Now, these overlap everywhere, okay? So understand, I'm breaking them down for clarity, but they overlap all over the place. You'll see them used uh, in substitution for one another. But 1 Corinthians 3.8, we see this. And it's this labor. The first way it's evaluated is the labor. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.8, that's the first area of evaluation where a Christian's life is producing building material in the labor that you do. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own what? So if you plant the seed of the gospel, that's, the, that's what we're talking about here. You plant the seed of the gospel or your watering seed that's already been planted. Okay, that labor is evaluated. So 
That's the labor of planting the seeds. That's the watering the planting that has been done in discipleship, perhaps, or in watering so that it comes up and then watering so that it grows whatever way along the path that you're doing that, okay? Mature disciples are reproducing disciples, so obviously you need to be planting seed. If you're a disciple, a a, a, a mature disciple is a reproducing disciple. And those that work the hardest at these things lay up, then, gold, silver, and costly stone. You are made to be a disciple, a reproducing disciple. You were given the mandate five times in the Gospels. It is part of your life. It needs to be part of your life. You have to incorporate it in how you live. And you are being evaluated in your building by your labor in those things. Okay? So think back on your life and think about how many times you've given the Gospel out. Okay? Now, if you can count that on one hand... If you can count it on one hand in the last couple months, that's not good, let alone over the course of your life. This needs to be a habit you develop. It's not something you give off to someone else. It's not something you can reject or accept according to whether you think you have the gift. Plain and simple, you're supposed to be working in planting or watering, and this is part of how the Lord evaluates you. Those that are engaged in his business are working together with God and promoting the purposes of his glory, right? Which is the salvation and sanctification of his people primarily, isn't it? And you are functioning inside the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and a gift in obedience to the Great Commission. So first of all, you're involved in this labor, okay? And people can really be busy about a lot of things and all around their house at the job because people, you know, have people you've never witnessed to. You can be busy about your house. You can be busy about your job. You've never witnessed to the people that are in your circle of influence. Listen, you're being evaluated on the labor, okay? This is not a, a judgment for damnation. This is not a, a, an eternal judgment to be cast away. This is simply... There's an account, there's accountability, and the boss is watching, and someday he's going to show up, he's going to say, okay, what did you do? So, you can be really busy about doing lots of stuff, but if you're not doing this, you're laying up wood, hay, and straw. Because the labor of witnessing and discipling is one God is measuring, and with it you choose your building material. Number two, evaluation area. Motive. Motive. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore... Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and that each man's praise will come to him from God. This is God bringing true evaluation to your motives and everything you want to keep secret. Okay? He keeps track of both of those things. Things hidden, that's the Greek adjective kryptos, something someone wants to keep sealed. That's the idea. That could be good things, so it could be anonymous gifts, it could be diligent prayer for somebody else, it could be gifts of help and mercy showing that they don't even understand happened, that you just made that happen because you saw the gift and you're just functioning under the radar and all of that stuff, and we've talked about that before. Those great gifts, respectful, thoughtful, prayerful, considerate, selfless types of things, okay? And you don't want anybody to know, you just like to do it and just let them be blessed, okay? It could be that kind of thing, and it could be bad things, okay, the things that are sealed, uh, that could be disrespectful things, disrespectful thoughts, selfishness, jealousness, um, unkindness, self-talk, see, uh, go- gossiping and, and de- divisiveness and sowing discord about somebody else, all that kind of, you know, you're not really serving even though you're going through the motions, but it's all being used to build your house. And it's all going to be known someday. It's all going to be tried then that segues right into the next one, and that's the word motives. That's the word boule. It's a Greek noun for counsels in plural, plural form. The heart is used to indicate the seat of the emotion. So here's the question. How did you really feel about something? That's the issue. So you could be working your gift, 
But the Lord's looking about how you really feel about it. So you may be saying, oh, man, I got nursery duty again this morning. Why can't somebody else fill in? So you go down there and you do your thing. And the whole time you're thinking, this is the fourth time in a row I've been down here. Or I've had to serve in Sunday school and children's church back-to-back six weeks. I've never been up in the service. See? And I, and I get that. I get, I get the tiredness that comes. I get you, you're worn out. I get, you know, you get tapped a lot. You're just like, man, can't somebody else do it? I get that. But here's the thing. Okay, the Lord's really clear. He says, like, I'm judging your motive. Okay, when you use your gifts totally and supremely for the glory of God, what's that? That's gold, right? When you just do it and you just freely give. Because you freely receive, freely give. So when you do that, that's gold, okay? That's a motive. God knows what you secretly think about it. He knows what you say to yourself about it. You may do a deed that looks gold, but your motive was stubble. Or your secret thoughts about it are hay. Then that's what you build with, see? If you have an unforgiveness in your heart against someone, or you're doing it so that someone will notice and think you're spiritual, and you're, you know, if you're quenching the spirit, all that, that's wood, hay, and stubble. That won't last. It looks like you're doing the thing, but God's looking at the motive. All right? We'll just move along. Conduct, that's the third way. Second Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what has what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, just another place in a second letter where Paul makes it clear there's a beam of seat judgment, and there's going to be some ways that, that's, that what you've did is qualified. And one of them is your conduct, things we've done physically, the way we live our life. See, these are all interconnected. Paul's just using two different letters to explain it, but I think it's important because he uses different words. But this is the things we've done physically, a lot like labor that we saw in 1 Corinthians. The way we live our life, the day-to-day conduct of our life, is wood, hay, or straw, or gold, silver, and costly stone. It's either good or it's bad. And the Lord is the one who can make that judgment. It's not your own evaluation of whether it was good or bad. Sometimes we're not very good at evaluating it. But these words in context really are adjectives describing the work of a believer. Agathos, things that are excellent. Pholos, those are worthless things. Those are things of no account. Every time you miss an opportunity that you could have filled, that's pholos. Every time you do something else when you could have served one another, that's pholos, okay? Every time you plug in and you use your time and you use your actions for the kingdom and you see a need and you fill it, agathos. Those are good things. That's good labor. See? You're being judged on your conduct. You're going to be judged on what is good and what's worthless and what is worthless is burned up and there's no reward for that. See? Fourthly, ministry. Once again, very closely connected but just different words that are used. First Peter 4.10 And ministry is a way that we lay up building material, of course, as we function with our spiritual gifts. All these overlap each other. We're just using the words that Scripture uses so we can have a, just a general understanding of how this works. Okay, but First Peter 4.10 says this, And each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So it goes on to name some of the gifts at that point. And then it says, Whoever speaks, verse 11, uh, is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God provides so that in all things God may be glorified. Through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Obviously, he says, listen, we're doing this so that God may be glorified through Jesus. But obviously, all the glory belongs to him. Even in your beam of seat judgment, where some of your life is completely consumed and none of it's left, who gets the glory for that? Isn't it true? Shouldn't we rejoice in the fact that God is clear about it and that he is holy and he's given his, his directive and he, he's given us how to do it and he's given the equipment to do it in the Holy Spirit and then he says, and I will come and call you into account for it. He gets glory for that, doesn't he? He's going to get glory regardless. And at the end of the Bema Seat Judgment, even if your entire, I'm sorry, talking too loud. Even if your entire 
Your entire life is consumed and all you have is a foundation left. You're going to give God glory for that because he was, he was astute enough, obviously, to see what it was. Right? And since you've been born again, you've been building on that foundation, beloved. Do you understand that? And that's a scary thing for me. I came to faith at seven years old. That's a long time. Longer than I'd like to admit. And some stuff I don't even remember anymore. How did I use those years? And you should be thinking that too. Not because I'm trying to scare you. I'm just saying, listen, this is how it works. And it just clears up if there was any uncertainty. The use of your spiritual gifts is the supreme way that God wants to use you. See, First Peter makes it very clear. Your biggest blessing from obedience is going to be found when you are functioning that way, inside your spiritual gifts, your ministry that's going on, and your conduct and all the things that we looked at already, the evaluation of motive and labor and all that. All those are interconnected with one another. But it's just the way that God is going to bring a judgment to what you do. In Romans 12, 11, again, I say this a lot. Your ministry should look like this. Not lagging behind in diligence. In other words, you should be on top of this. You own this, okay? You own this. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. I saw this ad. Somebody put it on Facebook in the paper. It's a construction company looking for people to come work for them. He said, don't come to work for us if you don't come back after lunch. And don't come to work for us if your ride to work will not get you there before we start. And don't apply to this job. He just gave a whole bunch of stuff that you think, you know, these are the, these are the excuses people make. If you get a flat tire once a week, don't apply for this job, okay? That, all that kind of stuff, see? And that's, that's really a lack of diligence, isn't it? That's a lack of due diligence. If you're, you're not showing up to your job and you're always showing up late, so this is not what the Lord wants. It's not the kind of work he's looking for. Fervent in spirit. You're excited about the, the, members, the, the uh, ministry that you have, serving the Lord. It measures effort along with obedience, doesn't it? The effort that's given along with the obedience that's offered. You know, First Peter 2.19 measures our ministry in the midst of difficult times. It says, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. There's coming a day when everybody's work's going to be tested. Wood, hay, and straw are going to burn. Gold, silver, marble, granite are not going to burn. Every believer's work is going to be tested so they can see what's left. Why? If any man's work which he has built on remains, he'll receive a reward. You may have a lot of your house left. You may have only a little piece of precious stone, a little hunk of gold left on the foundation when the fire is done. And God will say, here's your reward. And it may not sound like that important right now, but in the eternal state, it will be the thing. Because that part of your reward is what you get to glorify God with forever through Jesus. That follows you. Difficult times we've talked about before, as you endure those faithfully, you realize you're going to be able, we see from Scripture several times, very clearly, as you deal with difficult times, you deal with health issues, whatever, and you do that in a way that glorifies God, you get to bear that for His glory forever. You'll get to glorify God in a way you never would have been able to before as He takes you through the difficult times. So God is very clear, very consistent about how this works, Okay? It's not capricious. He's not, you know, kind of random and how that, you know, well, yeah, okay, you did all right. You, you did the best you could, whatever. God knows whether you did it correctly, even if you don't. And certainly others will not have a clear view of it either. And God will evaluate it, and you'll be rewarded. And we looked at the way God will reward by bringing a look at crowns in the New Testament. We won't look at that today. 
because there's a lot of stuff there, and you can catch up with that online. But, and if you, you didn't build well, then you're going to suffer loss, but not the loss of salvation, see? The loss of what? Well, the greatest majority, perhaps, of your life's work, all coming down. And no doubt, examined on the surface, catch this. No believer would immediately think that they would be the ones that would lose nearly everything, okay? Nobody thinks they're that guy or girl. But quite frankly, everybody probably is going to have some loss, some more, some less, some a lot more, but nobody thinks they're that person, okay? You're his, you're building his building, it's intricately connected to the way he has placed you in his church, beloved. This is all together, okay? So make sure, it's going to be very hard for you, and just as a side note, it's going to be very hard for you to do, to do the one another's in the New Testament if you're not with one another, okay? So don't tell me, oh, you know, I can worship God out, you know, when I'm doing this or that, and I don't have to come to church to be, you're right, you're a Christian, not doubting that you know Christ is Savior. I'm just doubting that you understand what the Word says about you being together with other believers. Because your life is wrapped up with each other. You're part of a physical body. And you can no more say, I'm disconnected for the, to that, than your hand can just say, I'm not, I'm not going to follow anymore. Okay? That's disease. That's not health. So make sure you're using your life up in the best way possible. Make sure you're laboring hard and selflessly in the planting of the seed of the gospel and watering of those plants in teaching and doctrine and serving selflessly no matter what your gift is because you know how the Holy Spirit works and you know what he's given you. And beloved, make sure your motives are pure. Whatever it is that you do, simply and completely for the unselfish love and for the glory of God, which is sometimes harder to do in an upfront gift. You may have a, a a job of teaching. You may lead a church. You may lead a Bible study, a small group. Sometimes it's harder to make sure that you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and in the way you're supposed to be doing it when you're up front than it may be if you're in a, in a, a gift that's not so noticeable and you can really evaluate. Because, you know, you show up here and i got to be here. Okay? So as I study throughout the week, and this, today I'm teaching morning and night, as I study throughout the week, that's my motivation. That at 5 minutes to 11, the sanctuary is going to be mostly full and I'm going to have to walk up here at 11.30 and do it, okay? So I can go up here and do it and not build anything of gold, silver, and precious stones and, and all that, okay? But you wouldn't know that, see? Any more than I would know, as you do your gift, wherever it is, what your motives are, see? But sometimes it's harder than an upfront gift to really get that straight and make sure that that's like it should be, okay? So make sure then your daily conduct is holy and righteous and obedient to the Lord, bringing flesh into submission, Make sure your life, your ministry, and your service is spiritually beneficial and faithful and long-suffering and patient when it gets hard. Use your gift in a manner that benefits the church as a stewardship, see? In that way, you're going to build what's appropriate for God's building, for God's temple. And you might say, man, if that was the qualification, I've got a big mud hut sitting on my foundation, all right? So, you know what's going to happen with that. Start building a wing on that's still going to be there, Okay? That's the great part about that, see, is you've realized what's up. Because don't forget, that's who you are, see. You're part of the temple, you're part of the house, you're part of the body. It's you, you're baptized into Christ, you're connected to each other, see. That's your reality. 
And I really think that many of the beautiful dwellings that can withstand the test of fire that Jesus will subject them to will be made up of lots of people, here it is, lots of people with gifts that the Corinthian church would have regarded as not important. See. And so, verse 25, 1 Corinthians 12, so God has set up the body so that there may be no division, but that the members may have the same care for one another. God hates division. We've seen it over and over again. He hates disunity. It marked the church in Corinth. It can mark the modern church. And he has personally placed all the gifts in the body just as he desired for his own purposes. And he has personally designed the body of Christ to evaluate itself correctly, see, and provide the care and thankfulness and honor for every gift that they should be providing and esteem each gift as he would. Each gift is important. Each gift will be rewarded for faithfulness. Some of the gifts that aren't seen or that need more protection, they're imperative. You can't even do without them, see. So Paul says, verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Just obvious, right? Of course. But he has to tell them, you're a body, okay? If one part of the body is being put down, it affects how everyone is being affected. And you should know this. If a part of the body is being honored, all the members are honored, okay? I mean, it's how the physical body works, all right? It's not the shot put arm that's going to get the gold medal, okay? It's the body that's going to get the gold medal, all right? Because it's part of the body and everybody gets honored when the shot put arm throws the farthest, okay? Or you jump the farthest or the highest. It's the whole body, not your legs or your core, okay? It's all of that, see? And the hamstring pull doesn't just affect the leg. It's the whole body, okay? And he's just telling them, listen, you need to be aware of what's going on. You're putting people down. You're making them feel like they're not that valuable. That hurts the whole body. You should be hurting. And when some parts of the body are being honored and these things are going well, then you should be happy. That's part of the body, see? It's the same way Paul just sums it up, see? Verse 27, he says, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. He's addressing a local body of believers. So we can apply that to every local body, okay? You have what you need to be to have an accurate representation of Jesus. Paul says, this whole time I've been talking about Jesus' body, and you are, he says, that body. So start putting the principles to work. That's how unity works inside the Holy Spirit. All right, let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for... Our time in your word, we're so grateful for it. We just say this over and over. You've exalted your word. You tell us equal to your own name. And you have given us the ability to be perfected by it. Sanctify us in your truth because your word is truth. Lord, we thank you too for the spiritual gifts you've given us. We thank you for many who at least from my evaluation, have built a beautiful home on the foundation of their salvation. Thank you that we benefit from that because they serve unselfishly and with fervency of spirit, excited about what they do and owning it, and many who come and serve and they're under the radar, they are some of those parts of our body that we don't see and need protection and need to be honored and taken care of, and we pray that uh, we'll do that better and I'll do that better. And Lord, we thank you for the conviction that you bring on all of us as we think about the Bema Seat Judgment, which is just so closely connected with how we plug into a local body. I pray that you'll put that together in our mind and 
just kind of block out, Father, anything that I have said that confused the issue and bring the clear issues uh, into our mind that we can take away those things you would have for us to know today. And work in us by your Holy Spirit is always our desire to be more faithful to you and to have a church that more reflects your own, the physical body of your own son represented on earth. Lord, we ask for workers for the harvest. We always do this. I pray this constantly, you know. Workers for the harvest, the field is white. Pray, first of all, that we'll have mature disciples who are reproducing themselves, which is how the church functions and flourishes. And Father, I pray that we'll have disciples who are watering others and the Second Timothy 2, two types of disciples who are taking the words that they've heard in front of many witnesses and teaching others also. Pray that you'll see that uh, begin to take even more effect with us. Thank you for those who are here today who benefited from the mutuality of the body and have been encouraged by one another and have prayed for one another and loved each other. And for those who are apart from us for the weeks that are on vacation, I pray that you encourage them, bring them in somewhere to fellowship and to your word that they might not be suffering from starvation spiritually. Thank you for tonight, Father. We'll get back together at 6.30 and open your word again. Pray that you bless that time and your word into, into our hearts. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.